Hey, this is Shannon from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron. Located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky, 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettleball classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606-310-4918. Hello everyone, you're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're discussing the art of dystopia. I'm Shannon Deaton, and across the table is 10-time Hunger Games champion, Jason Creekmore. How are you, champ? You have to do... What you have to do, Shannon. Were the odds in your favor? The, every time. The yeah. whole time? Ten years in a row. Yeah. You're sitting here. Yeah. You think you'll go back for an 11? Yeah, I'm pretty much a, a living legend in terms of Hunger Games. That's yeah. great, man. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't know how long you get to be a, a living legend in the Hunger Games, but congratulations. Yeah, usually not very long before you catch an arrow or, or something, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. it's short-lived. Yeah. yeah. So, Jason, we're talking about dystopia today. That kind of gets me fired up. Do you, do you like this topic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love uh, movies, TV shows, books, uh, anything really dealing with, with uh, dystopia. For whatever reason, I just kind of identify with that. I just, I just think the whole kind of genre is interesting. I do, too. These are books and movies and literary works that have always stood out to me and things that I've gravitated toward, even as a young adult. And that's what we're going to get into here in a bit, both the young adult fiction as well as some of the more modern, contemporary, and adult-type fiction that go into the dystopian category. But what in the world is dystopia? That's that's really the question to be answered, well, right? Well, do tell. Okay. Well, Jason, I'm glad you, you want to know. So <laughs> let, let's jump into it. The term dystopia refers to a community or society that is undesirable or frightening. It is an antonym for utopia, which is its complete opposite. If you're if you're trying to figure out what a utopia is, utopia is a term that was coined by Sir Thomas More and describes an ideal society with minimal crime, violence, and poverty. So dystopia just flips that on its head. It says there's, you know, typically a lot of crime, typically a lot of violence, typically a a lot of poverty. And oftentimes this is instituted by the government or ruling body itself. Oh, yeah. That's a very common theme in pretty much all these storylines. Yeah, that's the trope of dystopian fiction. Uh, Dystopias are often characterized by dehumanization, tyrannical governments, environmental disasters, or other characteristics associated with uh, maybe like a a cataclysmic decline in society. It's not how we envision the world. It's something completely different. Right. Dystopian uh, societies appear in many fictional works and artistic representations, particularly in stories set in the future. Some of the most famous works include Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984, and Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Have you read any of those novels? I think I've read all of them. (laughs) (laughs) It's a kind of required literature Uh, in college a lot of times. Yeah, I've read them too, and I love these books. They're they're great to go back to. There's so many neat uh, artistic elements to those. They're thematic, and as with all dystopian novels, they're rarely written just for the sake of entertainment itself right. although they are very interesting. Yeah, there's always something more you know and and uh, like you said there's there's always some common themes that are they're running you know through all of those but each of those stories also have some very specific 
types of things, yeah. you know, specific scenes that you remember, oh, that was specifically in 1984. That was that, that, was that book. Right, yeah. In addition to all those memorable things, you know, as we said, the best dystopian novels are warnings, and they teach us what it means to live in a free society because oftentimes they deal in cultures where freedom has been abolished. Right. Usually at the hand of the government or sometimes the people for whatever reason give up their freedoms and, and give up their liberties. So let's begin our discussion with one of the more contemporary works of uh, literary fiction, The Hunger Games. Now, I've read the books. I think there's three in total, and I've also uh, watched the movies. Have you done either of those? Yeah, Have you I've, seen the movies? I've done it all. Yeah, yeah. I've read all the books and, and watched all the movies. And, and we toyed with the idea of stopping by uh, North Carolina. I think part of the movie is is that what was actually filmed there. Oh, okay. And so we were going to South Carolina on vacation last year, and we, uh, we we tried to stop by there, but I think maybe we kind of ran short on time or, or whatever it was. But we were hoping to kind of go in and see some, uh, I think maybe like around the waterfall scenes and some of the... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, somewhere there in, in around North Carolina, some of the that film was shot. And of course, Jennifer Lawrence is a native Kentuckian. She's right? a Kentuckian. She's yep. from Louisville. She's from Louisville. Yep. Yeah. So The Hunger Games is a series of young adult dystopian novels written by American novelist Suzanne Collins. The series is set in the Hunger Games universe and follows young Katniss Everdeen, which I always loved that name. Even when I first started reading these books, I thought, yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. It's a perfect name. The first two books in the series were both New York Times bestsellers, and Mockingjay, which is the third book in the series, topped all U.S. bestseller lists upon its release. So, what's it actually about? Well, The Hunger Games is set in a post-apocalyptic time, which is the best time in literature. (laughs) As far as uh, dystopia is concerned, it is. (laughs) That's right. The capital is the cruel government of the 12 districts of Pan Am. Uh, which was once North America. As punishment for a revolution in the past, the capital created the Hunger Games. One boy and one girl, aged 12 to 18, are chosen from each district to fight on live television until only one child remains. And as I read that, that word child really sticks out to me. I mean, yeah. th- that was a defining point of the story is that at the end of the day, these are children that are being yeah. sent into the Hunger Games. Yeah, kind, kind of a gut punch on that. It is. It, it just makes it that much more disturbing. Right. Katniss Everdeen, the protagonist of the story, volunteers in the place of her younger sister for District 12. The male tribute for the district is Peter Malark, the son of a baker who coincidentally is in love with Katniss because you can't have a good dystopian novel without a little bit of romance, <laughs> right? It's the end of the world. It's a necessity. <laughs> Everybody hold hands. We got to find somebody <laughs> to love. Uh, citizens from most districts hate the capital because of the oppression, poverty, and violence that they suffer. Katniss actually angers the capital when she shows compassion during the Hunger Games by laying flowers on the body of a young girl who dies in the Hunger Games. And this was one of the more memorable scenes, both from the book and from the movie. I think the little girl's name was Rue. Yep. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And and she, she dies and Katniss pays homage to her and lays flowers on her grave. And apparently that's frowned upon because child killing in the Hunger Games is what it's all yeah, about. That, that, that entire event is supposed to be like a really savage, you know, cutthroat type of thing. And then, you know, when, when she shows compassion and love, that sort of uh, polarizes all of the other uh, districts. It does. Yeah. So at the end of the first novel, all of the children in the Hunger Games are killed except for Katniss and Peta. 
In the act of rebellion, uh, rather than kill each other, the two agree to eat poison berries to defy the capital. So they, they say, you know, we're, we're down to the last two. The games would dictate that we fight each other to the death. And they were trying to figure out a way to prevent that. So they decide that they're basically going to co-commit suicide by eating these poison berries. And they do that on live television. Everyone across all of the districts sees that. And the Capitol has to step in because they know that if these two individuals kill themselves instead of completing the games as prescribed, that that's going to show an act of independence. And it's going to show open defiance right. against the Capitol. So they have to step in. And the Capitol agrees to let both Katniss and PETA win the Hunger Games to avoid their own embarrassment. Right. They just come on the screen all of a sudden right as the berry yeah. is on the lip. Just <laughs> say, whoa, stop, whoa, 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 stop. <laughs> yeah. And we can tell that uh, these two are obviously in love. So therefore, for the first time ever, we're going to have these co-winners of the Hunger Games. But Jason, everybody sees this act of rebellion on television and the remainder of the series revolves around that rebellion and overthrowing the oppressive capital. So there's there's a lot of themes to be drawn from there. One thing that sticks out to me in this book and this this series is that it's set in very close to Appalachia. I think District 12 yeah. actually represents a, a portion of Appalachia. Yes, is it's that right? sort of like a, uh, a coal region. I think there's some scenes where you see like coal miners coming out. Yeah, that's it, their chief resource. Yeah it, yeah, it very much looks like Appalachia. Yeah. So overall, it's an interesting series. Definitely plays on some of the dystopian tropes. You have the tyrannical government. And what's interesting about this story is toward the end of the series, obviously Katniss has an opportunity to overthrow the president right. of this new world and she does in a way but there's someone else who is rising to power at the same time and in an act of rebellion against that new person she actually doesn't kill the president that she's tried to seek after the right. entire time so it kind of ends on an interesting note and there's there's a lot of humanization restored i think toward the end and one one other thing that sticks out is uh, just recently my wife and i watched that part of the What's it called? The the opening part where they're doing like the draft to choose who's going to be in the Hunger Games. Oh, yeah. I don't know what they call that exactly. But they're selecting the tributes. Right. And and it's literally someone just comes on stage and they draw names out of a bucket and there stands. It's sort of dead silent, right? It's just so silent. Yeah. And and the people are standing around basically in rags and they look so pitiful and, and poor. And so sad. And so sad because they know... Any one of those children could be drawn out, you know, ages 12 to 18, and they they draw the name, and it just happens to be the little sister of, right. of the main character. And one of the rules is that you can step in to replace someone who gets drawn out. And uh, I just remember Katniss in that scene, Jennifer Lawrence, she does a wonderful job. She just steps out, and she says, I volunteer. Yeah. I volunteer. She sort tribute. of freaks out. Yeah. She freaks out, and she screams, and she, she goes up to her sister, and she tells her, you know, go home, hurry, get away. And that's where it all begins right it's, it's a crazy crazy story but there there are other crazy stories on this list this one's one that's a little bit more contemporary but there's also one that we have talked about in the past so jason let's talk a little bit about the obsolete man the obsolete man is a twilight zone episode from 1961 starring burgess meredith the penguin I love him. He's great. Burgess Meredith, to me, I think is like Michael Keaton to you. 
right? And, and I know Michael Keaton apparently is going to be Batman now. He's coming back. That, that's yeah. a rabbit trail. We'll go down some other day. But <laughs> the, the Obsolete Men is a Twilight Zone episode, uh, again, from 1961, starring Burgess Meredith, who plays a librarian named Romney Wordsworth. Great name. That's perfect. That's awesome name. Uh, this particular episode takes place in the future, where we learn that a totalitarian state has emerged, and one common practice of the state is to murder citizens it deems as obsolete. And of course, Burgess Meredith's character is forced to appear before the chancellor, who tells him that he has been identified as obsolete because books have been banned, and therefore he must be put to death. And so in this particular scene, he comes in, it's a big, you know, cavernous room and the chancellor is behind a podium. Uh, it, it really looks like he's like 20 feet in the air. It's, it's a very authoritarian type of, of thing. Right. And he passes this judgment on him. Right. And so uh, Burgess Meredith's character was like, this isn't right. You know, people should have freedoms and you know, you should not do this. And they really just sort of laugh him off. Right. So uh, the, the chancellor tells the librarian that he may choose his method of death. So they're, I guess they're in their own mind trying to be nice to him somehow, right? Yeah, what, what a gift. So, yeah. Yay. <laughs> you can have you know this or this. Yeah. I choose cake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I love, I'm a big cake fan. So, you know, obviously, Mr. Wordsworth, he's uh, very sad you know, by that and concerned, obviously. And the next scene flashes to Mr. Wordsworth's apartment, uh, and he appears to be taking a nap just on the couch. Suddenly, there is a knock at the door, and Mr. Wordsworth opens it, and there stands the chancellor. So it's a very odd scene because just moments earlier, you're in this big official government building, and he's speaking from a, a position of authority. And he's right. literally looking way down on him. Yeah, and that's symbolic a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. And now all of a sudden, they're both in this small apartment. And they're on the same floor, the same, same level. Same field, right, yeah. yeah. And the chancellor walks in very confidently and tells Mr. Wordsworth that he had been notified that Mr. Wordsworth asked to see him as his final request. Right. And so uh, Burgess Meredith's uh, character, you know, he basically looks at him and says, well, I have selected my method of death and it's going to be a bomb. <laughs> and so the chancellor sort of gives him a weird look like, whatever, man, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's you, you right? Yeah. Uh, another request he had made was that he wanted it televised to uh, the state. Yeah. And so he points over to the wall. And so sort of like a unbeknownst to the chancellor, they have set up microphones and, and video like in the, on, like a, on the wall. And so uh, so he knows that everything is being videoed and recorded live. And they're going to great lengths to honor the fact that you can choose how you die. That, yeah. That's, that's yeah. a bit extreme. Uh, yeah. So that, they, they give him a lot of wishes here, right? You know. <laughs> and then, of course, obviously, you know, so he says, okay, I, I want to die by bomb in my apartment. I want the entire thing filmed. But before that happens, I want the chancellor to come by. I'd just like to speak with him before it happens. So the chancellor, again, and he, he agrees. He comes to his door and says, okay, they, they said you wanted to see me, so what's up? So uh, they kind of you know talk for a few minutes. Uh, the chancellor basically says, nice knowing you. He walks out the door, but he can't. All of a sudden, he realizes that the door is locked. Mm -hmm. And so Mr. Wordsworth says, uh, and so now basically, as you said earlier, we are now even. Yep. And we both have less than an hour to live. And he said, now you do whatever you want to during this time. Uh, for me, I'm going to go read my Bible. And he goes over and he uh, opens a safe and he picks this Bible up. And he says, I haven't read this in over 20 years because it's banned. Right? It's banned. Religion's banned. Reading in general's banned. Yeah. And so he just sits down on the couch and he begins reading in Psalms. 
So the chancellor seems very perturbed and it's like, let me out of here. And then he starts, you know, knocking on the door. And uh, of course, no cell phones back then, right? He's got to expect the men in black or whoever serves him there is going to come help in him, and right? help him out. Yeah. Yeah. But they don't. And they continue to sit there. And, you know, I, uh, surely, you know, some thoughts go through his mind like, well, maybe, maybe this is fake. Maybe he's not really asked for this. And right. surely someone would save me. So time goes on. And, uh, you know, uh, soon his agitation becomes like really like legit nervousness. And he becomes extremely nervous. He becomes ill. He begins to sweat. And uh, in the final moments, like literally the final seconds, uh, he turns to Mr. Wordsworth and he says, In the name of God, let me out. And Mr. Wordsworth says, Since you said in the name of God, I'll do it. And he goes and he opens the door. The guy rushes out the door. And literally, like three or four seconds later, there's this massive explosion. Right. And so Mr. Wordsworth, uh, it, it implies that, that he dies. And so it shows the chancellor the next scene uh, back at the governmental building. And uh, because he had appeared weak on television and he spoke out and, and was saying in the name of God and religion was supposed to have been banned, they deem him obsolete now. And so you know, at the end of the show, he's, I'm not obsolete. And they're like pulling him <laughs> through this long table. And it's, you know, it's, it's very dramatic, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And the guy just keeps standing above him. You are obsolete. You are obsolete. <laughs> so he gets a taste of his own medicine. Yeah. And, and I have some interesting quotes here uh, from that particular uh, scene. Mr. Wordsworth says, quote, no man is obsolete. And he's talking to the chancellor. The chancellor then says, you have no function, Mr. Wordsworth. You're like a ghost from another time. And then Mr. Wordsworth says, I am nothing more than a reminder to you that you cannot destroy truth by burning pages. You cannot erase God with an edict. Oh, man. That's very that's strong. That's a very powerful quote. It is. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, you have, you know, the iconic Rod Serling sort of staring into the camera. And then he says the chancellor, the late chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology which fails to recognize the worth, the dignity and the rights of man, that state is obsolete. I like that. I, I like that at the end, it falls back into this overarching concept of dystopias. It's a warning, right? right? Yeah. Typically, the writers are in on the situation. It's sort of situational irony in a way. The audience is aware that, okay, this is how the world could be in right. the future yeah. uh, unless we're careful and we're, mindful of yeah, I mean, our and, leadership. And could really uh, devolve into that relatively Easily. Could happen. Yep. Yeah. And can we appreciate that the librarian's name was Wordsworth? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Something tells me that, well, you know, it's it's no Katniss Everdeen. Right. But it's pretty good. Yeah. Right? Not, not a coincidence. <laughs> it's pretty good. I like so, that. so what do you have next? So you were talking about Obsolete Man and Burgess Meredith's character being sure. obsolete because he's a librarian and, and libraries are no longer needed because books are lo- no longer needed. So the book that really sticks out to me that reminds me of that exact situation is a book called Fahrenheit 451. Have you oh, heard yeah. of this book? Yep. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 is a dystopian novel by American writer Ray Bradbury, first published in 1953. The novel presents a future American society where books are outlawed and firemen burn any that are found. So in our world, obviously, firemen are responsible for putting out fires. Right. In this world, firemen are responsible for starting fires. So there's a little bit of a ironical sure. flip right. there. Uh, the book's tagline explains the title. So Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which book paper catches fire 
and burns. So if we were to set a stack of paper in a room and heat that room up to 451 degrees or set it in the oven and do the same, that would be the temperature at which the paper would just burst into flames. Right. So that's that's kind of the overarching tagline that and the theme that runs throughout the book. Very catchy title. It is, yeah. And the book centers on a character named Guy Montag. He's a fireman who, as we said, burns books and starts fires instead of putting them out. But people in Montauk society don't read books. They don't enjoy nature. They don't really spend time by themselves. They don't think independently. They don't have meaningful conversations. It's sort of shallow, surface-level stuff. And you may think, well, what do they do instead? They, they, don't, they don't read. They don't talk to each other. They don't like to go outside. Well, they do like to drive really fast. That's one of the, the hallmarks of this novel and people in the society. They like to drive super fast. They like to watch excessive amounts of television. Keep in mind, this was the 1950s oh, yeah. uh, on wall-sized TV sets, which in the 1950s, TVs were that was sort nowhere of near unheard of, that right big. Now. Yeah, but you know, wall-sized TVs, maybe not actual wall-sized, but big TVs that go on walls, they're pretty widespread right nowadays so yeah, we are, we're, we're very, in the future yeah very common yeah uh, they do like to listen to radio uh, and they listen to radio sets in their ears called seashell radio and again this was predating a time where headphones especially earbuds right. were super common so it's interesting that all of this was foreshadowed by ray bradbury in I, the 50s i wonder if they listen to uh, slapdash I hope so, man. (laughs) They might be listening now, you know, in some corner of the Twilight Zone. Maybe they can access the podcast. And if they are, hi, Rod. (laughs) (laughs) What's up? What's up? So in this book, Montag, our protagonist, encounters a gentle 17-year-old girl, and her name is Clarice McClellan. Uh, She opens his eyes to the emptiness of his own life because she's so passionate about life and she's so contrary to all the things that he represents. So... As the novel kicks in over the next few days, Montag experiences several unfortunate events. This is his turning point. Uh, His wife attempts suicide. A lady who he's going to burn her books chooses to be burned alongside her books. And he receives news that the 17-year-old girl he met, the one that was so full of life, got killed by a speeding car. And it was just sort of a, a tagline rolling at the bottom of a news station, like not even a big deal. Right. But to him, that represented something much, much larger. So one day when Montag just is fed up with it and he fails to show up for work, his boss comes looking for him and discovers that Montag actually has a secret stash of books. Keeping in mind, he's a fireman, Uh-oh. so he's supposed to be burning these. Right. <laughs> They're illegal. You, you're not supposed to have them. And the secret stash, he stowed away in an air conditioner unit. Just hit them away. The boss explains to Montag the reason books were outlawed in the first place. And this really sticks with me. I think this is that warning part of dystopian fiction right. that uh, Bradbury was getting at. It began with the censoring and banning of individual books. So society said, I don't like what this book says. We should ban it. And then over time, that gradually progressed. And as authors attempted to remove any offensive language or ideas from their books, all the books started to look the same. So they got really boring. Right. As you can imagine, people really didn't like them. And uh, even then, the public was afraid of the sharing of opposing ideas, even when they were reading these bland books that all sounded exactly the same. And none of them really took a stance on any issue whatsoever. So the government said, okay, books will just be outlawed. And that's that's what happens. And that's that. Yeah, so, so Bradbury's given us a blueprint for how you arrive at that stage where literature 
is basically illegal. That sort of gradual, gradual process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in the end, Montag decides that literature is actually important, and he joins a group of book lovers who have each memorized a great work of literature or philosophy. And Montag is assigned the responsibility of memorizing the book of Ecclesiastes. And the story concludes with Montag and his group moving forward to try to reintroduce literature into society. There's some other things that happens, but it ends on a high note. They're, they're going back in to sort of rebuild the world in a way. And there's some quotes here that I thought were really interesting and, and tie in nicely to the art of dystopia. Here's one, quote, There must be something in books, things we can't imagine, to make a woman stay in a burning house. There must be something there. You don't stay for nothing, end quote. That's powerful. Yeah. Uh, another quote, it says, A book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Take the shot from the weapon. So this was these were the instructions given sure. to the firemen to just kind of make them think of books and literature it's just almost su- as like a crime waiting to happen. Super dangerous, right. Super dangerous, yeah. Final quote I'll share is, Remember, the firemen are rarely necessary. The public itself stopped reading of its own accord. Yeah, that that quote almost sort of makes you a little bit like like almost mad yeah. a little bit. It's you know <laughs> it what I mean. It's like how silly you know how silly were they that they just kind of did it on their own and we didn't have to really even do much to them. That's right. You it, know? It's like if people don't exercise their rights and their liberties, I think the message here is that those can just go away right. very easily in, in the swipe of a hand and nobody misses them until they do. Right. And one of the biggest books to come out of this era and to really jumpstart dystopian literature in the modern sense was Brave New World. And I, I think that's one of the heavyweights in that's this a category. Right. Yeah. yeah. So Jason, you you've read Brave New World, right? I have. So so what's what's going on with it? Brave New World is one of the more influential dystopian novels ever written. Uh, this particular novel was written by uh, Aldous Huxley in 1931, but was published in 1932 and challenges a number of social norms such as personal freedoms, marriage, and religion. The setting for the novel is London, England in the year 632 AF, AF. <laughs> or or in our in, in, in our time or uh, in our calendar 2540. Okay. Uh, by you know the the regular calendar, so it's in the future. So in the future, AF stands for after Ford, as A- in, ah. after Ford, as in Henry Ford. Okay, the new world uh, state emerged, uh, in, of course, in the novel, due to the ideas and concepts of Henry Ford. Ford was given credit for the assembly line, which in time led to the scientific and extremely logical world of the new state. And all of the people there take a, uh, a a particular drug called soma. Have you ever heard of this? Or I, I remember I that read from the book. The, it's been a while since I've read it, but right. I, yeah, okay. So they all take so it. they they all take soma, which makes them very complacent and and pretty much happy uh, yeah. for for the most part. Uh, in this new world, everything is just a little bit different. Uh, in fact, uh, the the new world state even treats human reproduction in a very different and factory-like manner. In the opening scene of the novel, a group of people are given a tour of the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center. Hatchery. Hatchery. So again, we're talking about humans here. So that sounds very family-oriented, right? It sounds industrial. (laughs) It absolutely (laughs) sounds industrial, right? The, The employees boast how a single fertilized egg can now be replicated so that dozens of fetuses can be developed. 
This is how the state controls the population as well as perpetuates uh, this new caste system that uh, has been implemented. In the society, there are, dis, uh, or there are uh, distinct groups of uh, people, each bred and conditioned to perform certain aspects within the state. The most disturbing scene of the novel, at least in my opinion, occurs in chapter two when these people, they are continuing to uh, tour the facility and they are shown one of the conditioning techniques uh, specifically. They basically have a room full of babies or they're shown a room full of babies of a lower class uh, within their caste system and the nurses place books on the floor for the baby. So you have these eight month old babies that are crawling around, right? And they put books on the floor. And of course they crawl up, they open them up and they're doing what eight month old babies do, right? And suddenly this piercing sound erupts and scares the babies to death. They begin to crawl away from the books and then they begin to even initiate like a mild electrical shock on the floor. Oh man. And of course it hurts. I mean, that's even, that's, that's difficult to even, that's, that's hard to hear, man. That's hard to hear. I'm sad. I want to go hold my kids and and read a book to them. I mean, (laughs) I've read a lot of books and and honestly, that was one of the the toughest things I think I've ever read. And of course there's no blood involved. No. There's no gore. It's just all psychological. But that just gets to you as, as a human being. Yeah. And so, uh, so they do this, right? And the reason behind, and and of course the, the, the babies are okay. All right. So after it's over, the babies, they're, you know, obviously they're, uh, scattered and they're nervous and they're crying, but they they crawl away. And then the doctors begin to explain that the reason why they do this is because they want to make sure that those the babies in that particular group uh, develop an innate fear of books. And right. if they're scared to death of books, if they will literally run from them when they see them, then they know that they will not they will not entertain the thought of being able to learn how to read. They, they won't become intellectual that's and, a, and rise above their caste system, that's, their class. That, that's exactly right. And when they show these people that are taking the tour of this, they're so proud of their accomplishments, you know. And even the people watching, it's like, oh yes, that's you know that makes you know perfect sense. Again, wow. hen, hence the word dystopia. Yeah. And again, so everything we just sort of talked about there is in the first couple of chapters. Uh, but the main character of the book is Bernard Marx, and Bernard while he belongs to one of the upper groups within the system uh, is a bit lacking in self-confidence due to his height and that kind of is a sort of a, a theme sort of throughout the book see is he tall short he's short he's, he's a, short he's a little okay. shorter yeah yeah and for some reason that really really bothers him uh, eventually he and his love interest uh lenina crown leave london to visit a savage land in a primitive part of the world where the people still practice religion marriage and have normal births <laughs> so so just regular old downtown Whitley City, that, but but they call savages, right? So, <laughs> right those, yeah, those monsters. So, that, yeah, uh, how dare they? I can't believe they marry one another, right? <laughs> right. So while uh, while they're there, they meet a young man named John, who eventually will be uh, known as John the Savage. Uh, Bernard, <laughs> well, that's his name. That's what they call him, John the Savage. Right. right. So uh, Bernard brings him back to London, uh, where the Savage becomes very popular. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of scenes that sort of unfold there. Uh, unfortunately, the ending of the novel is is pretty depressing. Uh, I won't go into all the details in mm-hmm. case someone wants to wants to read that. But basically, that they have someone who ha- uh, who who has grown up in a, in a quote unquote savage land in a land that we would consider normal, right? right. And he is brought back to this this new state, uh, and people are just mesmerized by him, and he's mesmerized by them. And so there's a lot of you know back and forth dialogue and interaction those types of things, uh, but 
Brave New World features the ideas and philosophies of, of several key historical figures, many of whom we've talked about on, on this podcast in, in past episodes. Uh, Thomas Malthus with his ideas about population control. Oh, yeah. Right? So that, that's in there. Uh, obviously, I've, I've mentioned Henry Ford uh, earlier with the assembly line. Uh, Ivan Pavlov with the whole you know concept of conditioning. Right. Uh, and, of course, the main character is Bernard Marx, so not too much of a stretch to make the connection to Karl Marx, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and then I also have some uh, pretty interesting quotes here that I, that I thought from the from the novel. I'll just go down the list here. Quote: "If one's different, one's bound to be lonely." Hmm. Another quote is: "I want to know what passion is. I want to feel something strongly." Hmm. And I think this is Bernard with these with these quotes. Right. Uh, this one kind of got to my heart a little bit. It's very, I had to read it like four times, but it's, it's really simple. I am, and I wish I weren't. Oh, man, that's That's sad. all it says. With, that, just, that just has a sense of dread to it. I know, yeah. Just, I, just lack I of hope. I am, and I wish I weren't, yeah. Huh. Uh, and then another quote, uh, one believes things because one has been conditioned to believe them. Oh, then that's a common theme so in a lot of dystopian that, works. That's a big one, yeah. And then another one uh, that I thought just sort of jumped off the page uh, at me is, quote, I ate civilization, it poisoned me, Hmm. end quote. Interesting. Yeah. So there's some really good dialogue. Uh, there's uh, some some kind of wild scenes in this book. To be quite you know, to, to be quite honest. Oh yeah. Uh, some of the things we've not you know talked about and discussed. But it's it's a really interesting book because I mean society looks way different, right? It does. And it, and it's it it's supposed to be much more scientific and much more logical, and therefore it has to be better. Right. Uh, but that's really just not the case uh, at, at at all. Man, I'm still hung up on the electric nursery floor. That's just that's it's terrible. It's <laughs> awful. I mean, really, I've read tons of books in my life, and that particular scene when I read that, I read it like four times. Yeah, and I had to remind myself this was written almost a hundred years ago now. It was, yeah. and so I mean, I'm just like, golly, that, that's that's incredible that someone would would put that in into print. It know? is, and one thing, if I remember this right, I haven't read this too recently. But in order to ensure their class system, they also starve these kids of uh, oxygen in some places, yeah. like during the developmental stage. Yeah, and it, and it basically so their brains. Yeah, like they don't fully develop. It's sad. as they should. Yeah, and they think that's totally okay. You know, they think that I guess the ends justify the means to to do that. And they just Man. say it sort of flippantly and like no big deal. It's horrible. I just want to go read like uh, Dr. Seuss, you know, the, the places you will go. That's right. <laughs> Let that be the only model I have for yeah. children's literature. Yeah. The little engine that could, <laughs> yeah. that type of thing. So I have one more interesting connection here. Aldous Huxley and Orwell, George Orwell, actually knew each other. And, and they wrote to each other. They wrote letters. And they would send manuscripts back and forth. And what's interesting is Brave New World came first, but you know what came just shortly after Brave New World? It was... 1984? 1984. Yeah, uh, the probably the second big heavy hitter oh, yeah. on the list here. And Orwell sent the manuscript for 1984 to Huxley. Huxley read it, sent it back, and he said they will never publish this. It's terrible. Really? <laughs> he did, yeah. And just <laughs> you, despite it, man. Yeah, you won't trump mine, right? <laughs> yeah. That more or less is how I read it. I don't yeah. know if that's what was really going on or if it was just sort of good-natured elbowing each other because right. they were contemporaries and, I guess, pen pals <laughs> or something. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, 1984, man. This is 
this one is the big one to me. I, I only knew about Brave New World through 1984. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think 1984 gets first place in this. I mean, when you talk about dystopian novels, to me, and I think honestly probably most people, 1984 is is the big one. I think that's the one that, that most people identify with. It is. It's really heavy-handed with the dystopian tropes. It has right. all the things. It's got them all. Yeah. yeah. So 1984 is a dystopian novel by English novelist George Orwell. It was published in June 1949, not too far away from the 1984 that was imagined. This was a short-term future that we were working our way toward. And it was Orwell's ninth and final book completed in his lifetime. And I would argue one of his best among, uh, alongside maybe Animal Farm. Yeah. Love Animal Farm. Thematically, 1984 focuses on the consequences of government overreach, totalitarianism, mass surveillance, and repressive regimentation of all persons and behaviors within society. That's a mouthful. Yeah. I mean, anything that you could conceivably do as a free human being is just handcuffed, locked down, and you, you kind of get swatted on the nose. You can't do that. And, right. and worse, you know. So the story takes place in an imagined future in the year 1984 when much of the world has fallen victim to perpetual war. Just everybody's into it in this book and there's bombs falling all the time. <laughs> everybody's fighting. There's an omnipresent government surveillance. They're always watching you. There's actually posters all throughout the novel where literally the figurehead of the book, which we'll talk about in a second, whose name is Big Brother. He's the <laughs> leader of the party, right. you know, which is the big government agency in the book and he's just pointing his finger and and the it just reads big brother is watching you <laughs> you know just right. to remind you that no matter yeah. where you go you are under surveillance yeah. big brother is watching you but his sister alexa is listening to you <laughs> <laughs> man that's a that's a scary connection <laughs> right there to make <laughs> that's uh that's pretty accurate yeah <laughs> So uh, Great Britain is actually the setting for this. Uh, it's become a province of the totalitarian superstate, which is named Oceania. And as we said, it's ruled by the party. That's the major predominant political party, just the party. And they employ the thought police to persecute individuality and independent thinking. Man, thought police, that that's pervaded like popular culture for so long and it's it's so scary i mean you can think about policing physical actions somebody committed a crime they stole some toothpaste from walmart we saw that right there there was a witness or whatever yeah so the police arrest them but the thought police if i just thought about stealing toothpaste yeah Yeah. and and constantly people are spying on you and, and trying to report you back to the thought police in order to get some kind of perceived benefit from big brother it's just the cyclical process of right people you know sort of a dog eat dog world and as we said big brother is the leader of the party but it's actually unclear to the people whether big brother is a real person who exists you right. never actually see big brother proper you just hear of the entity almost, the name big brother almost like a mascot <laughs> it's almost the mascot yeah. yeah uh the protagonist of the story winston smith is a working class man who secretly hates the party but works in the ministry of truth and the purpose of the ministry of truth is to alter historical records to fit the needs of the party so you see again the the big thing about dystopia is it flips it on its head. So the Ministry of Truth is responsible for fabricating <laughs> right. the truth and changing yeah. history. Uh, Winston falls in love with a co-worker named Julia, but as these things go, their love is forbidden because you can't do that. They're not they're not savages. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so they keep their affair a secret. 
But eventually, because the novel has to happen, (laughs) a powerful member of the inner party, Winston is a member of the outer party, uh, wants to see Winston. And when he visits this man, and his name is O'Brien, O'Brien reveals that he too hates the party and is part of a secret resistance group known as the Brotherhood. Okay. (laughs) I just feel fists in the air on that one. O'Brien inducts Winston and Julia into the Brotherhood and gives them a copy of a manifesto written by the Brotherhood's leader, Emmanuel Goldstein. And I love that name. What what a good resistance leader. That's a that's a good name. That guy's getting ready right. to get into an X Wing and go fight <laughs> right. some Imperial soldiers <laughs> right. yeah. on the Death Star. That's exactly right. Awesome <laughs> Emmanuel name. Goldstein. Eventually Winston and Julia are captured by the Thought Police, and it's revealed that O'Brien was actually a spy for the party. O'Brien spends several months torturing and brainwashing Winston. At one point, O'Brien tells Winston that 2 plus 2 is 5, and that the torture and pain will stop if Winston will only accept it as truth. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's terrifying, and I I remember the thought process of Winston when this book is at that part. He's... He sees the two plus two like on a board or something that they keep showing him, and it said, you know, it says like two plus two equals four, and then O'Brien says, "Tell me what you see. What does two plus two equal?" And he's like four, and then whatever happens, electrical shock or right. a smack on the face or, or whatever, and he said, "Look at it again and look closely <laughs> because two plus two is five. So what do you see here when you look at this?" And they just go back and forth with that, and I think he tries to lie to him. He's like, "You know, it's it's five. And he's like, "No, you have to." believe it he, he wasn't interested in compliance he was interested he, commitment. in commitment commitment and just <laughs> right. psychological you know just complete topsy-turvy right. just sort of dev- cognitive just devastate yeah. everything he believed just yeah. just change it all and i think they said at one point that the the evidence that you are fully committed to the party is that you will reject the evidence of your ears and eyes isn't that bizarre that's so strange it's so crazy at the end of the torture, O'Brien takes Winston into a room to face his worst fear, and this is called Room 101, <laughs> which will never hold the same meaning <laughs> for me again. Right, yeah. All throughout the novel, Winston, he's had a fear of rats, so this is something he absolutely detests, he's afraid of. It truly is his biggest fear, rats. So O'Brien straps a cage full of rats onto Winston's head <laughs> oh and prepares gosh. to allow the rats to eat his face. It, it's so sad. Oh, my gosh. At this point, the poor man's been tortured for months, and then they finally bring him into room 101, and he faces his greatest fear, and they're trying to break him. I'd be, I'd be like, two plus two equals cat. <laughs> Whatever you say, <laughs> Whatever guys. you say, let me out. Just let me out of here. I don't well, want to be in the rat cage. It, it's even sadder <laughs> than that because Winston pleads with O'Brien and finally tells him to do it to Julia, not to him. Oh, my gosh. It's heartbreaking, man. Yeah. Uh, And giving up Julia is obviously what O'Brien wanted all along. So his spirit's broken. Winston's released back into the outside world. And uh, he meets Julia, but no longer feels anything for her. He looks at her, and he's like, what was I even thinking? Because he's been brainwashed and mentally rewired. He's been taken to the brink and back. Uh, He's come to accept the ways of the party entirely, and he has learned to love Big Brother. It's wow. It's just crazy. What an ending. A few quotes here. The book starts with this quote, and I, I thought this was cool. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. That's the first <laughs> sentence in the entire book. And right. obviously, I think they're making a reference to the doomsday clock because it was actually created just a few years prior to the novel being right. written. Yeah. 
the idea that whenever the metaphorical clock gets to 12, that's doomsday and the world ends probably due to some nuclear threat or yep. you know weather phenomenon or something like that. And for them to be striking 13, that means we're an hour past the end of the world. Right. And that's where the book begins. <laughs> I think it really sets that's the pretty, stage that's, for all the messed up stuff. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, another quote uh, says, who controls the past controls the future and who controls the present controls the past. So basically... Whoever is in power at the time has the ability to manipulate the past, maybe through the ministry of truth. And if you can change the past, you can impact the future. Right. So, uh, And then the final one I'll share is probably the most famous set of words from the book. And it, it says this, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. So I, I think that sums that, it up. A lot of that double double talk type thing. There's right? double talk. Yeah. In, well, they call it double speak. Double speak. Or something like yeah. that. And um, it, it's the idea that you can hold these two obviously completely contrasting thoughts, and yet they can still be true in your mind. And man, that's the ultimate form right. of brainwashing. I know. Like the other day, we were talking about uh, not this novel particularly, but something along those lines of double speak and and examples like to be ill is to be well. Yeah, that's or exactly something right. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To be to have fun is to be bored. You know, to, right. to be alive is to be dead. To be dead. <laughs> yes, makes sense. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it yes. all it all makes. <laughs> yeah, perfect, two two is five. Yes, yes, yeah. But I, I think all of these novels speak to society present and future and i think they do a good job of providing these warnings to us as a society about the limits and overreach of government and just how to prevent that from happening to us in the present so jason we've talked about a lot of dystopian works here do you have any final thoughts or conclusions makes me paranoid it's scary right it's a little bit scary uh, a little bit of uh, paranoia sitting in i know that when i get nervous so how's this for a transition right so i know when i get nervous (laughs) i like to go exercise and work out right yeah you do yeah is that a good transition i like that that's pretty good that's nice so i'm gonna go to 606 Iron Cannon, <laughs> <laughs> which is our sponsor. I'm going to go up there tonight. Uh, they uh, the, the building is about five minutes from where I live. I'm going to go up. I'm going to get on a treadmill, and I'm going to pump some iron. Sounds good, man. That's awesome. Do you think Big Brother will be watching? <laughs> <laughs> they do have security cameras for your safety. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. For, for your safety. For your safety. For your yeah. safety. So I'll wave at them. That yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks to all of our listeners who are tuning in each week. Thank you for following us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Instagram with the handle at slapdash pod. We release new episodes every week on Mondays and Thursdays in history, art, science, and everything else. We'll catch you in the next episode. May the odds be ever in your favor. Wah, wah.